0: Prepare for an unforgettable hour of television. God, oh, that's him. Oh, Kirk. An historic encounter between two legendary crews. He's
1: so much more handsome
0: in person. Together in one of Star Trek's most beloved adventures. They are detestable creatures. This? Celebrate an extraordinary event you'll have to see to believe. Too much, Father. Next time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine.
1: Transfer
0: complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton getting his physical 1,500. I really thought you were going to open with a triple noise. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I, I eh, That's cliche. Come on. True, true. Because, uh, folks, we are here this week to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Deep Space Nine episode Trials and Tribulations. Boy, what an episode. What an episode that you think that it's already been 30
1: years, but Cam, I hate to break it to you. It's been 25 years, and I think it was actually me messing up on our last episode in which I described it as a 30th anniversary. But this, in fact, aired in... No, wait, wait. It was a a 1996 episode, and Star Trek started in 66. Oh, I thought you were saying that this is 30 years since it aired. That's why we're doing oh. the episode. Oh, this, uh, now I'm this, all mixed this week.
0: up. 30th anniversary of Star Trek, but yes,
1: yes. So No, no, no. Um, 30th anniversary of Star Trek was back in 1996. We're now in yes. 2021, and we are celebrating the 25-year anniversary of Trials and Tribulations here. And this one is, look, look I, I think we had like two big episodes coming around that same week with Voyager and with Deep Space Nine. And I kind of feel embarrassed for what the Voyager producers delivered with flashback in which we had the return of, um, you know, George Takei as Sulu on 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 the bridge. Uh, (laughs) It's not that bad. (laughs) You would not be embarrassed if you were the producers on Voyager and you saw what uh, the folks on Deep Space Nine produced. And then days later, you gave everyone flashback. That's kind of like, you're kind of like going like, oh, I I wish we really went all out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, would they have been embarrassed? I think there would be the excitement factor of having George Decay back on screen, Rand back on screen, doing an Excelsior story. Like, I think on a technological level, the Trials and Tribulations is a far bigger triumph and I think just an overall better episode. I don't know that I would be embarrassed, though, necessarily.
1: If I was a producer and I saw what the Deep Space Nine folks delivered, and then I saw Hmm. what I delivered, maybe not embarrassed, but I would definitely be able to acknowledge that the Deep Space Nine people outdid me in every single way. And that's kind of... uh, And and look, there's a reason why we're talking about Trials and Tribulations, not Flashback this week. And I I, I think that this one is kind of an example of the best kind of fan service, you know, not the... The super pandering stuff in that eye-rolling sort of way. Look, th- this episode's pandering, hmm. but it's it's done out of a place of love and passion, not more of that cynical memberberries sort of way that we're seeing a lot with. I don't know. Ghostbusters Afterlife is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, we're not hearing great things about it at this point, but I get the sense it's going. That's more of the uh, memberberries sort of fan service stuff that we'll be getting soon. I don't think Trials and Tribulations was ever guilty of such a thing.
0: No. And maybe that's a conversation we can have at some point just about what does this say about nostalgia, you know, back in 1996 when they were making this episode versus how we treat nostalgia now. But I just really had a question for you. I guess it's kind of diving off of nostalgia. What was your first experience with this episode? Because you saw it back in the day, right? Oh yeah, I was following all the news leading up to this over
1: the summer, you know, the Deep Space Nine writers were saying, yeah, we've got big, big plans ahead. And honestly, I was actually more excited to see the uh, flashback episode because uh, Star Trek 6, the undiscovered country, uh, in which that's the time period that the flashback episode takes place. And that is probably my favorite TOS adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just absolutely love that movie. And I was more excited to see that, and then, you know, I, I wasn't really into the original series, I was familiar with Trials, or the Trouble with Tribbles, you know, but I don't think I have actually seen the episode right. before Trials aired. I'd not seen the Trouble with Tribbles before Deep Space Nine's Trials and Tribulations aired, but I, I know that there's a lot of excitement. And my mom, who watched uh, the original series with her own mother growing up, um... She never watched any of the Next Gen or Voyager or Deep Space Nine stuff with me, but she actually was very, very excited to sit down and watch this with me. And um, I'll I'll clue you in into some of Tracy Orton's comments as we go through uh, kind of our thoughts on this episode. It was very amusing, um, but it was kind of a family thing. And, And, like, I was honestly, I was just absolutely blown away with what they were able to accomplish. If I recall correctly, I think Flashback aired first Uh, At least where I live locally, I think it aired on the Wednesday and I think Deep Space Nine aired on the Saturday. And so I I am personally like kind of uh, happy that I got to watch Deep Space Nine second and I wasn't super, super judgy of Flashback at the time. Uh, Much the same way I'm very judgy about Flashback uh, today, uh, (laughs) 25 years later.
0: Yeah. And I guess I can't ask you if it made you like track down the original series episode, because in those days, what did that mean? Going to the library, waiting for it on syndication? Do you know like well, at, at what point you were able to go and watch the original series episode and then kind of compare the two?
1: I think it was about five years later, yeah. uh, because I'd moved back up uh, to Canada, where we have the uh, the space Channel. Mm-hmm. and the space channel was like they would do like these all day marathons um, uh, maybe you know a couple times a year. And I remember that's likely when I would have seen uh, the uh, trial, the trouble with Tribbles uh, for the first time. So, But, but Cam, I, I'm, I'm sure you probably knew of this. Or, or let me ask you this. Did you know of this episode
0: when it was airing, even if you didn't necessarily tune in at the time? I don't think I did know about it when I um, went to watch it. But once I see the name Trials and Tribulations, I was like, oh, okay, cool. We're doing Tribbles. I, ugh, it's so tough for me to remember. I don't think I was aware of just the technical leaps and hurdles they'd taken to merge the two worlds of the original series and Deep Space Nine on the actual episode. I think, to the best of my memory, I would have just seen the title. Maybe I knew they wore the uniforms at some point or something, but it was more like going into it, it was just like, oh, they're just going to kind of riff off Tribbles. That'll be fun. Because I was very familiar with the trouble of Tribbles having watched TOS before DS9. So, yeah, I think I was surprised at the time just that it was so tied to the events of that original series episode, so
1: it not had not been spoiled for you about ten years ago when you did your initial deep space nine watch is that is that correct?
0: Yeah, I don't think so because I don't recall anything that like what would have spoiled it for me? I don't think I would have been looking online in those days for yeah. anything related to d s nine and I just have i don't you think you would have ever mentioned it you you know you were pretty obviously good with spoilers you weren't saying you might mention an episode to me like oh have you gotten to in the pale moonlight yet or something like that but you'd never be like have you seen the one where they recreate the trouble with tribbles?" you know so no i think i just maybe knew it was a must-see episode
1: i think i kept asking you like have you gotten to the one where jake gets a girlfriend who sucks his brain power all the time (laughs) have you have you (laughs) that was why you told me to watch the show in the first place (laughs) <laughs> ah, exactly. So so when 1996 hits, you would have been like, uh, I, I guess, almost exactly like turning 16. Yeah. Um, but was it in the ether? Like, were you aware that it was Star Trek's 30th anniversary?
0: Um, I'm trying to think of why I would have been aware. Because I was definitely not fo- uh, following anything that was going on on Voyager. Um, I didn't know anyone that was watching Deep Space Nine. So other than... Um, maybe tied into promotions for First Contact, I might have heard things, but it was not like a big event in my little world. Okay. I think, I, I've asked you this before, Um, did you see First
1: Contact in theaters at the time?
0: No, I watched it as soon as it hit pay-per-view, back in the days where you got okay. pay-per-view, you know, where you'd pay the money, and there was a pretty good chance the signal would cut out or it would go blurry at certain points but yeah that's how i saw no it. no that, that's just the spice channel cam <laughs> uh, that was just the spice channel actually what is the spice channel i don't even know
1: it, it was like um i think it was only available down in the u.s but it was like pornography oh okay like, it was like the playboy channel or whatever
0: okay i'm sure you can use your imagination. yeah yeah it wasn't about the spice girls or anything like that i think for up here it was just one of the other pay uh pay-per-view channels but it was just like a numbered channel so you because you just picked your movie right so it'd be like the higher ranking uh pay-per-view channels would be the adult ones i wouldn't know (laughs) i'm an angel (laughs) sure sure mr spice channel (laughs) (laughs) it's like you're like what is the spice channel i have this long explanation <laughs> <laughs> tyler's watching dune where everyone's obsessed with spice he's like i can relate
1: <laughs> <laughs> well let's jump off that this like uh, from a story per- telling perspective you have a couple conceits going on here in this like there's there's one that the the flashback so to speak uh, no pun intended uh, uh conceit of the department of temporal investigations um asking you know uh, Cisco to recount exactly what happened. And so we've got a little bit of clumsy exposition, like um he has to explain what orbs are to I think that the writers expected there'd be a lot of non Deep Space Nine fans tuning into this episode and they didn't want them to get lost within the first four minutes of this. But then you also have the Arn Darwin conceits. Um what do you feel about like um both these conceits kind of setting up the story as we, you know, as it unfolds from there?
0: Yeah, like a narrative device like this temporal um, interview with Cisco. That can be like the sort of thing that's very clunky in storytelling. We all know the examples of these framing devices that just feel really awkward. I think what makes this one work really well is that it's pretty fun. Like the two actors they cast as the investigators who are interviewing Cisco, they both have sort of a wry sense of humor. They feel a little funny to watch. And so there's a lightness right off the get-go that sets the tone for everything that's going to come forward. It doesn't feel like you're cutting back to just static moments of Cisco describing things. It feels like they're of the same tone as the episode. As for the um, the reintroduction of Arn Darvin, it's the sort of touch that like, it's just kind of perfect. It's kind of the cherry on top of what makes all of this episode so fun. It's not necessarily essential to what makes this episode great, but because it's not like Arn Darvin was like one of the like major, major players in Trouble with Tribbles. He's a little bit of a side character in that one. But here, I just thought, again, great device. And for fans of that episode, I mean, they must have just been blown away to see that character
1: back. I also think that the way that they set him up as an antagonist who has very clear motivations, which is something mm-hmm. that we don't often get, uh, unfortunately, in a lot of uh, episodic television. And Star Trek was very often guilty of that. Like, you didn't really care about the uh, no-good-doer's um uh, intentions here but they explained like you know after he was kicked out of uh, you know Klingon intelligence he spent 100 years living out life as a, a human merchants and then he had the final indignity of falling victim to a Klingon attack while he was uh, behind Cardassian borders you can understand why this guy wants to go back in time and assassinate James Kirk I, I get where he's coming from even if I'm not cheering for him
0: what's the lifespan of a Klingon Uh,
1: Well, I would say it's at least, like, around 150 years. That's my guess. Based on, like, you know, we had kind of uh, the mention of uh, Koloth, uh, for example. And I I would uh, place him, uh, you know, probably around 150 years old when he was on Deep Space Nine. So just based on Deep Space Nine is about 100 years uh, after Kirk. And, yeah, and we also, (laughs) what is the lifespan? What is the lifespan of a Klingon childhood? Because uh, Alexander went from, like, um, you know, infant to grown man in about what like eight years yeah so
0: you know yeah the only reason so. i asked that question is because whenever i think of a you know older character coming back on uh, one of the newer shows i think of bones mccoy showing up on tng where it's like the mummy showing up like with that makeup and so when i see arn darwin i'm like boy does he look spry on ds9 like this actor he looks great and that's why i was curious just in terms of the lifespan but you are right like i hadn't i hadn't really uh, thought of Koloth and Kang and all that, the group who show up. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess with uh, genetic engineering, uh, Arn Darvin, he had the best in the business. Yeah, you know, Ash Tyler could have only hoped for that, right? Mm, yeah, let's see uh, Ash Tyler show up, um, you know, far off into the future one day. We'll see. <laughs> in the 33rd or 32nd century, right? <laughs> do we ever see that
1: character again? Yeah, we do. And... Yeah. the. Yeah, I, I I I think we will, and I, I I don't care if we do. So
0: I guess strange new worlds. Yeah, probably. Hmm.
1: Well, let me ask you this though. Um, the, the introduction of the seventeen oh one, it is you know they have like just like the hint of the TOS theme music playing as the uh view screen kind of comes into focus, and we get like this nice magnificent reveal at the end of the teaser. I think that's a great way to hook everybody in. How does this reveal compare with what we saw in the season one finale of uh, Star Trek Discovery, which we had the introduction
0: of the 1701 once again? Oh, that's such an excellent question because they're kind of doing a similar thing. But I think they're okay. The way they do it here it feels much more built around sort of the wonders of nostalgia. Like when nostalgia isn't perverted and weird, like it is nowadays and completely cynical, there is a magic to it. And it feels like they're really going for that here, where that shot of the classic Enterprise showing up on the view screen, it almost feels 3D. When you see that Enterprise on that view screen, it almost looks like it's going to come right through the view screen. And that is just a really powerful um, effect. And it really pulls you into whatever this story is going to be. Now, the one in Discovery, the music is doing a lot of heavy lifting. The new design of the ship looks fantastic. But I don't know that it has the magic. It's more like a really exciting, I can't wait to see what they're going to do with the Enterprise. But I don't think it has that sort of, that pure, like, nostalgic power that we get here. I think they work... I think both those reveals work, but on kind of
1: different emotional levels. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that, um, it, like the discovery use of it, that's more of the kind of cynical sort of fan service. And it's the stuff that I usually hate, but in that moment, it 100% worked for me. I, I'm not going to deny it. Like I, I totally got sucked into that. I, I probably had like, uh, more of a kind of a, uh, 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 endorphin jolt to my system when I saw that at the end of discovery, probably because of, uh, that season finale was like, pretty blah yeah and if anything just give me uh get me excited about what would come next whereas this one i, I you're right I, this felt very magical to it and um the, the only thing that kind of undercut it is i knew what this episode was going to be about right i knew that we were going to see the 1701 somehow i did not have any expectations of seeing the 1701 at the very end of will you take my hand at discovery season uh one finale Um, so yeah, both of them work for me. I'll get, honestly, I I hate to say it. I'll give the nod to Discovery uh, just for the reveal of the Enterprise though.
0: Hmm. Okay. I mean, that one feels like it's going to have major ripples on what the show could be. Whereas this, you know, it's a one and done fun episode, right? So there is a little bit of a difference there. I think for me, this one, just the way they showcase it. It's pulling you back into a like 1960s aesthetic of Star Trek, which it just as you know, we've used the word magic, but that's really the word that applies where it just feels like you're going backwards. Whereas with Discovery, it feels like you're uh, you're basically going to be treated to an entirely new look at something, you know, well. You know, you bring back kind of the uh, the nostalgia factor once
1: again, and there, there's a great line that Dax says. You know, when you know she she and Cisco like actually have a lot of great moments. Uh, I think they probably have. This is like their best, you know, kind of uh, duo duo that they've ever had uh, on Deep Space Nine. But finally, like Dax tries to explain it to Cisco. She's like, you know, the difference for me is I lived in this time. It's hard for me not to want to be part of it again. And I, I think she's speaking to a lot of those, you know, original series fans. And I, I think that's kind of a very good, insightful thing there. Um, but with regards to the ship itself, like, um, I don't think fans had seen the ship look this good ever before. That You know, we uh, had seen, obviously, the original series movies, but that was a different ship, essentially. You, you could call it the refit or whatever. We had not seen this actual design Um, mastered in such a way, even though it wasn't a model, it was um, a CG in this situation, but I think that just must have been exhilarating for fans at the time, too.
0: And just seeing new corridors and how they kind of expand the world of that ship in ways that are expensive but not, um, you know, not unattainable on a TV budget. Just, you know, jumping forward 30 years to 96, being able to expand on the world of TOS, like, it just... The fact that it feels so technically of a piece with the original series episode just really adds to the power of it. And it feels like you have a sense of discovery just exploring these new corridors and new little sections of the ship. It's almost giving you that present of, I'm sure a lot of Star Trek fans, myself included, actually, when you finish the three seasons of TOS, you want to live in that world more, but you're limited by, well, there's the animated series, um there's the movies where we go to a different version of the Enterprise but you never get to go back really to that 1960s world. And this is like the gift of let's go back one more time to to the Enterprise as you remember it, not as new people will reinterpret it such as JJ Abrams. Well, then that kind of leads me to my next question for you.
1: What is our response going to be like when we are, you know, 6 months from now we're watching the Strange New Worlds premiere? And we're going through new corridors where they have kind of a, a, a flourish, uh, a, a sort of inspiration from the original series ship. But, it, it, you know, it, it's definitely not going to be the same, you know, And, and but it's going to be more similar than what we got from the J.J. verse, though.
0: Yeah, I, I think when I'm looking at, well, we could just look at the Enterprise on Season 2 Discovery. It's more about the tone and just the feel like there is that spirit of TOS that can come through in any Star Trek show, but it's really going to be up to um, Strange New Worlds to really carry that flag going forward. And I think if you can tap into that, you can tap into the magic, but you can't ever go back to that world. Like you're you're not going to do a full series that looks like Trials and Tribulations. That just would be kind of strange to do, although I'm not against it. Uh, You'll never quite go back there, but I think you can get the spirit. Well it's I I guess it's in a
1: mere darkly from Enterprise. That's really going mm. to be probably the last time we ever kind of get that uh, that feeling again. Now we, we had it with Relics, we had it with this, and we have it in Enterprise, you know. And I think I'm okay with those examples being kind of, you know, kind of uh, crystallized in ember so to speak, and that can be it uh, moving forward.
0: Well and also all the three you named there are very special incredibly well-written episodes that left everyone very happy and we'd like to revisit much later down the road i think the one thing we could see is um kind of bang on replicas of the original series in maybe the animated world at some point down the road i don't know what the future of star trek holds but you could do a cg version you know on a animated show or something I would be totally down for that if, you know, we got, like, the big um, Lord Dex episode
1: in which we visited the 1701 for some reason, and they really would cre- recreate that. Would Shatner come back
0: and do some voice work as Captain Kirk, Camp? Okay. Shatner is 90 years old, right? Yeah. And um, he only has so many years left on the Earth. He's never done anything from, for you know, Star Trek really related since... Um, I guess generations, right? Um, Other than the Oscar skit where he dressed up as Captain Kirk (laughs) when Seth MacFarlane hosted. But um, it feels like you have to do something with him before he's gone, right? Like it would just be a real missed opportunity. Well, you and I were talking
1: yesterday how, you know, I've kind of put it off all these years, but next time I'm at a convention that Shatner's at, I I really do need to get my photo taken with him. You know, it'll be a hundred bucks, whatever, that you have your photo. I think you took that almost like 10 years ago, I recall, but, you know, like, I just need to kind of bite the bullet and do it because I'll probably regret never having done it if I just don't do it now.
0: Yeah, it's like as these years creep by and we see Star Trek stars pass away, you know, ongoing. Just recently, um, Camille Saviola, who Tyler, you and I did photo ops with in Vegas. She played Kai Opaka on DS9. Um, She was 71, I think, when she passed, which isn't particularly old in the scheme of things. So you just never know and you don't want to miss those opportunities. Yeah, so... Okay, so <laughs> moving forward, we're, we're here. Oh, okay, I've, I've got another
1: question. I'm going to keep kind of pressing you for like just your experiences at the time. Yeah. But okay, you thought that it was going to be kind of like, oh, the Tribble show up on Deep Space Nine um, when you push play on your DVDs. When the Enterprise actually showed up, what where did you mind go after that?
0: I think I was bowled over because we should also note you had the episode earlier on in DS9 um, crossover where they go to the Mirror Universe, right? And so I'd seen that. And I think my expectations would have been the Tribble episode would be along the line of crossover. It's like, we're going to have Tribbles, but it'll be a DS9 episode through and through. Cool. So um, I think I was bowled over when I saw that Enterprise. And it was just this unfolding of delights throughout the episode of just, you know, the uniforms and the world and the interaction with classic characters. It just, I wonder how much of this episode it was the effect of Forrest Gump two years earlier of that kind of that movie say what you will about it people have very mixed opinions you know as we continue onward since its release but um the merging of Tom Hanks with historical characters really bowled people over and the magic of what you can achieve with that really continues on here and I think just taps that vein for Star Trek fans where I was just I mean when I had that scene of them all lined up You know, all the guys lined up, and you have Bashir and O'Brien there, and Kirk walking up and down the row. I was just astonished at what I was seeing.
1: So, I'm curious, you know, with regards to the Forrest Gump comparison that you brought up, I I had never really known why, whenever Ben, Benjamin Sisko showed up on screen, you'd always go, Ben A, Ben A. (laughs) But it's all crystal clear for me now at this point. So, um, yeah, you know, okay, so you bring up the moment, like everyone's jumping into the uniforms. Uh, That's not a shot that we, typically get in the burman era where it's like the uh, quick cutaways everyone's putting on boots new uniforms uh, judzia's doing her hair they're getting their uh (laughs) their old tricorders that is very much an in the moment we love this universe let's just go for it even if it kind of breaks some of the rules that we have during that uh, 1990s era of star trek
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you read the behind the scenes on this one, how they were thinking originally about doing all original series music and then decided, no, it's a DS9 episode. But it just seems like everyone involved, top to bottom, was so excited. And this could have been an episode that, like, they bend over backwards with all the technical elements. And because of that, it feels labored and it feels like, Well, maybe we look at it and go, technically, good job. But boy, the storytelling feels really heavy. But just the lightness is carried through. And I feel like some of these more visually dynamic uh, moments, like you're talking about, with the uniforms, it just feels like it's coming from the energy of all the people making the episode, where it's just improvisation and having fun in this universe. And I mean, I'm sure it was a ton of work in terms of blocking and lighting and all this sort of stuff. Must have been an absolute nightmare, but you would never know it from the results on screen.
1: Well, the last time I watched this episode, and it may have been the last time you watched this episode as well, it was back in Vegas at one of the conventions a few years ago, and they had a lot of the behind-the-scenes people. Uh, the, the, we had a screening of the episode in the main ballroom with a, you know, a couple thousand people in there, or, or at least seats for a few thousand people. And then we had a panel afterwards in which a lot of the the behind-the-scenes people, they just got into the minutiae of it. There were slideshows, there were video demonstrations. I was just fascinated with stuff like um, not ever considering the fact that when Jadzia was on the bridge, this is a woman who's at least six foot tall, you know, Terry Farrell. She is wearing high heels as part of, like, kind of the uniform back in the day. She also has a beehive hairdo. (laughs) and. So she's essentially like seven feet tall in these shots. <laughs> and that's, it, it, I never thought about why she happened to be kind of like almost crouching down at the console through the shot with Kirk in the foreground and her in the background. And if she was standing up straight, I realized we would only see her up to like her, just below her shoulders. So it's, it's like that kind of stuff. Like yeah. uh, it was just so illuminating to watch and just seeing like all the blood, sweat, and tears that everybody poured into the making of this
0: like imagine they didn't have a script they loved and had, were going through all of these hurdles. Like it would have been an episode that would have been really rough to watch and you would have felt that cor- that sort of um, laborious pressure on them to just pull this off technically. It's just crazy. You know, you read stories about the making of this where like, you know, the guy who built the Enterprise model on this wasn't even given the assignment to do it. He was a guy who worked kind of part-time with the show and heard they wanted one, but they hadn't decided what to do yet and he went and started it on his own. So it's like people who are so committed to the vision of this, and it feels like even when they would have been solving problems, they were having fun doing it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because they said essentially that it kind of blew, the producer said that it blew their budget uh, for much of the rest of the season. But uh, honestly, by the end of the season, I think they kind of uh, got it back going because we did have something like a Call to Arms uh, come back again. So, uh, so could you imagine if people didn't care that much just like, um, how much less of an episode it would have looked like just if they weren't pouring all that
0: money into it? Oh, yeah. Like, it looks so seamless. Visually, they talk about, like, the lighting they had to deal with because 60s lighting is such a specific thing. 60s makeup is such a specific thing. Um, The fact that they have this visual um connectivity between DS9 and TOS is really an achievement because I've seen so many times in film and TV history where they try to... Blend, you know, old footage with new, and you can really just see the seams. Whereas here, when I'm watching Kirk go up and down that row of of you know guys, it, nothing stands out. It just all blends together well. The only thing, and it's not even a criticism, it is what it is. But it's like the one thing they couldn't really match was the way that sound was recorded back in the day, because like the voices do sound a little different. Yeah. But at the end of the day, who cares, right?
1: I had the same reaction, and like uh when. Uh, Uhura and Chaka of walk into the bar on uh, K7. I-, I did notice the difference in audio, but immediately I was like, yeah, who cares? Like, this is still wonderful to watch. Like, it- it's not taking me out of the moment at all. It- it's also bizarre to think, this is 25 years ago? Think about what they were able to accomplish technically 25 years ago. It still blows my mind.
0: Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. And the one kind of ironic thing about this episode, though, is that Uh, TOS has been remastered in Blu-ray and everything. So it's almost like now the original episode now looks uh, more timeless than the Trials and Tribulations because DS9 hasn't been upgraded for HD. I would like to remedy that because it's really sad and tragic given the amount of work that went into this. I actually watched um, today when I watched the episode, I purposely watched it off the um, Season 2 TOS um, set, which includes this episode on the Blu-ray. Because I was just crossing my fingers, it might look a little uh, better. No, it didn't, yeah, unfortunately. No. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well okay. So I, I want to go
1: back to the kind of the Forrest Gump comparison uh, a little bit. I, I'm going to digress, which I love to do, obviously. But uh, with regards to potential feature films of Star Trek. We've wondered, like, what, what might get audiences in there? And I, I wonder if there's almost that sort of Forrest Gump element of a time tra- of another time travel movie in which we have a brand new crew. They have to drop in on some of the most uh, ex- explosive, biggest events that we know from Star Trek lore as fans. You know, like, what if there is an episode where some crew members are in the background during uh, Best of Both Worlds. You know, we get that uh, moment where maybe somebody's at, I don't know, the uh, the environmental controls op- uh, console, and they look over, and that's when Locutus is staring uh, directly at the view screen. I I wonder if there's something th- to drive new audiences into the theaters, because I- we've debated a lot, like, what is the future of the feature film franchise and we've struggled like I, I don't know what to do and i think this might be something that could draw audiences in or even just draw new subscribers over to paramount plus if these are not going to be you know theatrical releases but just maybe feature films that are going to be distributed
0: over streaming that's definitely a good avenue because i think as we go forward too i don't know if they're going to be rebooting you know kirk and spock and crew again for the movies or if they'd be doing TNG movies or whatever, they may at some point wanna have original crews that they would create for the movie world. And that would be a smart way to connect it to the larger world of Star Trek. And also we live at a specific time where this sort of thing is very popular. Um, The upcoming Spider-Man movie, we're gonna be seeing crossovers with characters from like the Tobey Maguire films and the Andrew Garfield films. Um, A lot of the upcoming Marvel stuff is gonna be hopping around dimensions to things we've seen. If that is a trend that's going to be hot right now, Star Trek would be smart to look at it because I think it would be really effective. And they did it in a short track recently, um, Ephraim and Dot, that I thought was really fun and effective. If you could do that on a grander scale, it could be great. It's going to be one of those things, I think, I have a lot of confidence in the upcoming Spider-Man film, but I think as more people try to follow this trend, because look, it's going to draw people to theaters big time, this sort of nostalgia stuff. Um, you are going to get convoluted examples that get very messy and very confusing for people and probably really are disasters. But if Star Trek could hone it down and do something along the lines of what they're doing in this episode, it could be incredible, absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder if they're kind of not necessarily hinting at that, but they're building up to confidence and being able to do that where we have all these legacy characters already popping up on, you know, Star Trek Picard is right in the title, but you have a big you know, name like Seven of Nine also being featured. We have uh, Janeway on Star Trek: Prodigy. Uh, we've got uh, Spock and Pike on Strange New Worlds. I don't think they're as fearful uh, of revisiting these sorts of avenues as they were, you know, back in the nineteen nineties. And I think, I, honestly, like I, I think the the Spider Man uh, example that you gave is kind of a perfect, you know, way of showing like, look, audiences—they're probably going to be in for this, you know, like um, general audiences, like if you're just saying like oh yeah i recognize that iconic star trek moment based on the marketing it'd be fun to go see it realized in kind of a different way and i'm not talking about the reboot but kind of more of this trials and tribulations forrest gump sort of example that we're getting here i think that would be kind of a fun it almost sounds as if like the chris hemsworth movie that we almost got a couple years back it almost seems as if that they were hinting that might have been the case did did you ever get that sense it seems like
0: it, it seemed like it was going to be based around time travel. And don't tell me the whole gist of the movie was reuniting with Cribs Hemsworth to take down like a villain. Like That's so boring. Like I feel like yeah. they must have had something, like a spark of something that had them really excited to the point where J.J. Abrams on the press tour for Star Trek Beyond is saying he's just come across the greatest Star Trek script yet. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> what about the movie you're promoting, J.J.? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Star Trek (laughs) (laughs) 4. Yeah.
1: Uh, one of the curious things, uh, j- just going into, I, I guess, more of the, uh, the nitty-gritty of the episode, but it, it took uh, either, like, halfway through or more than halfway through for Kirk and Spock to appear on screen. Yeah, A lot of people might have been disappointed by that, but I, I think that's actually good storytelling in that you're building up, and when they actually uh, do appear on screen, and they have that musical cue, which is kind of the TOS-era music, you know, it-, it really hits a lot more than if they're there right from the beginning. And then you have just kind of the look of awe come over... Jadzia's face, and this is why this is actually kind of a good Ben Cisco episode, is he didn't want to get caught up with that. Like, he had a mission to complete, and it wasn't until that mission was successful that he was willing to go ahead and get that own little bit of fan service by getting the, uh, the signature slash autograph from uh, Captain Kirk himself.
0: Yeah. Uh, th- I love this moment. And I think one of the smart things, too, is that the first time we see Kirk and Spock here... It's a very nondescript moment. It's just the two of them walking down the hallway um, and, you know, getting on the communicator. Like, it's nothing about it that's like a greatest hits of Kirk moment. And I think that's really a smart decision because we're going to have some iconic Kirk moments throughout the episode of, you know, the Tribbles falling on top of them and stuff like that. But a moment like this grounds the reality of the world they're walking into versus them popping in as all of history's greatest moments unfold. So I thought that was a really smart decision. Also, it is pretty funny now to have uh, Terry Farrell's character, Dax, ogling over, uh, you know, Nimoy's Spock, knowing she would go on to marry Adam Nimoy later down the road. Uh, did she know that at the time? Maybe uh, that's why her...
1: Well, actually, it's kind of creepy thinking that that's her uh, father-in-law. So, <laughs> it's
0: Now that I think funny. about it. It's very
1: funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but, okay, and then uh, just even... If a lot of what we're doing is like asking ourselves if this episode is kind of the example of the good sort of fan service, perhaps the best fan service ever, though, is in that moment, you know, like Cisco even says, like, of course, I'd love to go shake Kirk's hand and ask him about fighting the Gorn on Cestus three. That's the sort of like fan service that I really like. Just kind of the, that throwaway line that everyone's going to get, you know, with regards to him fighting the Gorn, because that might be like a, like a top three iconic moment in all of Star Trek.
0: Yeah, and I mean, when you think of the iconic Kirk moments, like if, if this hadn't been um, Trials and Tribulations, and I know they'd flirted as well with uh, a piece of the action, going to the gangster planet and seeing what's up with them now, but like, if you are going to go back and insert your crew into a classic TOS story, there's not many options other than Tribbles that I think people can easily access. And I would say it's probably this or the Gorn episode, right? And I mean, the Gorn episode would be a lot of people just sitting watching TV half of the episode. Or maybe they're just hiding behind rocks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, there's only so much you can do. Because there's, look, there's amazing other Star Trek episodes, Balance of Terror, you know, there's so many out there. But in terms of just putting something out there that every Star Trek viewer can tune into and kind of just get the broad strokes of the story without... um, requiring a lot of exposition to explain what's going on, Uh, Trouble with Troubles and Arena are probably the best, too.
1: Yeah. Do you think there's a third one you might float out there?
0: Well, okay, let's start thinking of, like, the really iconic TOS episodes that everyone knows. Like, there's a Mock Time um, boy. Um, Maybe Space Seed, you know? But I I wonder if that's mostly because of the Wrath
1: of Khan sort of, uh, like, attachment or connection, I should say.
0: Yeah, like, I I would say maybe a piece of the action would be one you could have done if you wanted to just cross your characters in there, because it's such a loose premise. It's them in a gangster planet just having to deal with what's going on. It's not like it's a, um, you know, particularly complex narrative to navigate. So maybe that would have been the best other option other than Arena that at least I would say. I think you're wrong. I think it would have been Cat's Paw. Oh, my God. Had they done that? I think I would be so bowled over. I would be cheering on this episode for the rest of my life. <laughs> just them walking around a haunted house, essentially. Like, <laughs> like the fact that they would just deem that to be the perfect episode to um, insert themselves into for the celebration of Star Trek. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, on the topic of fan service as well, though, uh, we do have the appearance
1: of the old school Klingons uh, hmm. aboard the station Everyone from the Deep Space Nine crew is, like, very confused. They look at Worf. He simply says, we do not discuss it with outsiders. I think that was the smartest thing that they ever did in Star Trek. The Klingon two-parter on Enterprise where they try to explain it. I'm not a huge fan of that. Actually, we did a review of it um, not too long ago. It's actually the episode itself is actually solid. It's mostly, like, the last five minutes of it that make us roll our eyes. I just think the, the more ambiguous you leave it, the better. and then discovery kind of made it even more confusing because Klingons have an entire different look, and this and that uh, series takes place, or at least started about 10 years before trials and tribulations. So I don't know, like uh okay, but again, like, uh, what was your reaction first time you watched it, when you had the acknowledgement that Klingons do look different, uh, you know, a century apart? I think I may have been more
0: thankful the fight wasn't as long but um, <laughs> <laughs> as in Trials and Tribulations, or I mean, as in uh, The Trouble triples, Tribbles, but um, no, I thought, well, we've been talking about fan service and we live in a very explainy age of nostalgia now where it's all about, look at what this is, let's talk about what it is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that they are evoking classic nostalgia, but having fun with it, like there is good writing going on here. They are actively acknowledging the difference but getting a good punchline out of it and also a really good character moment for Worf like uh there's a lot of really great Worf stuff of him looking you know really annoyed about the Tribbles and talking about the great Tribble hunt and then here acknowledging the differences between the Klingons is it dismissive of a canon issue maybe but it's done in a really fun character-based satisfying way. Well, if we're talking
1: about canon, I, I don't want to get too caught up in things here. Uh, the Trouble with Edward short track, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took place about 10 years before this episode. And so I, I don't think canon is actually violated in any way because we find out with the short track, it's really, I guess, what the equivalent of 23rd gain of function research led to on the part of uh, Edward on the uh, starship there in, in which uh, he made Tribble's Far more prodigious than we had ever known before. And I think it's actually the Federation's fault, essentially, that they became the mortal enemies of the Empire, you know. But just the idea that hundreds of warriors. Were sent to eradicate. I'm just picturing them with their batlets, like slicing them all. And then, like, <laughs> and then finally, and Worf was so proud. He's like, they finally destroyed their home world. And everyone's just like appalled. <laughs> you know, it's just like, um, maybe that's a short trek right there, just watching the Klingons uh, eradicate the tribbles or something like that. But I, 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 I had to justify it in my head because I realized, well, you know, um, maybe what Worf is recounting is all stuff that took place after. Trials and tribulations, slash the trouble with tribbles. You know, like, uh, it, it's really the Klingons really came to hate the tribbles, you know, in, in the decades after this episode,
0: not necessarily the decades before this episode. Um, could we get a great Tribble hunt, like, um, cutaway on like lower decks or something? Cause that could be very funny. Oh, I, I would, to- <laughs> and very bloody and gruesome too, but uh, I would
1: totally watch that.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I was gonna say too, speaking of Klingons, um, We have mentions of Koloth, who appeared, of course, in the classic episode. And he was played by William Campbell. And we have Jadzia talking about, oh, wouldn't it be great to see him in his prime? And you then start to reflect on just the relationship between DS9 and TOS, where we have a lot of those classic Klingons showing up on DS9 in ongoing roles. And it's so interesting that in so many ways TNG was viewed as the heir of TOS the one that continued on all of the storytelling of TOS despite the fact it very rarely acknowledged a lot of TOS canon whereas DS9 feels like it's so much tighter in sort of that ongoing conversation where you have an episode like this you have other recurring characters and it's just so weird when you think back to of like people constantly referring to DS9 as kind of the problematic Star Trek. um, You know, this isn't Star Trek. This isn't what Gene Roddenberry wanted. Where it feels like it's the one that loves TOS the most.
1: I think that's very clear. And it's interesting because when TNG first premiered, it wasn't a fan favorite. Yeah, And it's not as if, like, we know it. Like, those first two seasons were, were not great. And when you were doing your initial watch, like, all the way through, you got to season three and you're like, eh. Has the show really changed that much? But but as you do your latest rewatch, you, you started at season three just in the last little while, right, Cam?
0: Yeah, I skipped one and two.
1: <laughs> yeah, so is there kind of an appreciation on your part that actually, you know what, like season three, they did start to take like a, a more discernible leap in storytelling versus what we had in those first two seasons?
0: I think, well, there's definitely far higher highs in season three, but I think also something that I discovered um going back and doing my rewatch was there is a comfort of tone that they strike starting in season three onwards where that hangout factor is really there and it's obviously as you go through seasons four five six and what have you it really settles in and the storytelling gets you know the bar keeps getting raised throughout most of tng's run minus season seven's a little wonky But you go back to season three, it has that really strong um, character-driven hangout factor that's just not there in season one and two. So I think that's what I discovered more so. Yeah, we... We keep talking about, but it's the digressions and just sitting with the
1: characters that I, I kind of appreciate that much more. The the, the moment in Lower Decks that keeps c- coming back to me over the last few weeks is, do you remember there, there's, I don't know, the ship is under attack or whatever. And they had to announce, during the middle of the ballroom dancing competition, the, can- the, the this has been canceled just for now. And everybody was so upset, you know, that the ballroom dancing competition had been canceled. But it's like, <laughs> that's what kind of TNG... Was about it's like let's go have like um you know string quartet performances in um, ten Ford you know like let's have an opera for- performance because Ambassador sarek is visiting the ship it, it's that sort of stuff where like it feels as if you're in more of a community versus you know just kind of sitting around like these more sterile ships like Voyager and you know maybe you visit the holodeck but it's not it doesn't have that quite looser lived-in feel where you're going to be able to hang out with the characters although i i should give credit like think about all the moments in like the uh uh the mess hall where you know characters are just sitting with each other kind of chewing the fat you know like that that show does deserve you know um, credit there but um it's just something that i really do appreciate is every opportunity that we get to sit with the characters and as you were saying we didn't really do it that much in seasons one and two is more of like kind of the propulsive you know I beat plot point by plot point
0: sort of storytelling that we got. Propulsive might be a kind word (laughs) for some of those season one and two episodes.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) not not propulsive, I mean um, perhaps (laughs) plot point obsessed.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's funny too, like TNG really took the kind of hip to be square attitude towards Star Trek where like, as you said, there's like (laughs) all these recitals and poetry readings and all that. Like it's kind of In love with the world of kind of how square these characters are and it finds ways to make them fun tos was kind of a swinging ship in a lot of ways it had that 60s spirit and that's something that like kind of carried into ds9 which was also a little more of a party atmosphere in a lot of ways what with quark's bar largely
1: Speaking of Quark's Bar, you know, we did an episode uh, a while back about, you know, kind of the lost seasons of uh, TNG, you know, following the adventures that we never got to see, you know, like, uh, you know, Geordi gets uh, his visor removed and gets ocular implants instead. Was there kind of a missing episode here of Deep Space Nine? At the very end, we see Bar uh, with—it's just flooded with Tribbles on the promenade. I think there's kind of a missing Deep Space Nine episode in terms of how they deal with the whole Tribble
0: infestation there on the station. I had the same thought, but then I was like, it may have just been really gruesome. It may have been them just sweeping through. They put Worf in charge of that one, and we know how that ends. (laughs) Uh, hopefully he would do the right thing and, I don't know, beam them all into the cold of space or something. <laughs> Probably, something along those lines. One thing I thought, not a missed opportunity, but it's like in a perfect world where I can make this like a two-hour movie, this episode, it would have been fun to have a scene of Worf and O'Brien together talking about their experiences on the Enterprise versus the TOS Enterprise.
1: Yeah, you know, I never thought about that, but, you know, c- c- okay, because there's even that moment with the temporal investigators and he's like, which Enterprise? There have been five. And the other guy looks over and says, six. And this episode came about, what, like two weeks or maybe one week before the premiere of First Contact as well. So it's just kind of interesting. Like there, there is like this long history of different Enterprises. And I, I think just commenting on the fact that um, maybe there aren't like, you know, like poetry readings going on uh, <laughs> in the mess hall there, you know, like that could have been kind of a fun. And they even said, you know, um, yeah, they really pack them in on these old starships as well. Whereas it didn't seem as if TNG was, you know, too, too cramped.
0: Yeah, or even just have a character be like, is this how Captain Picard ran his Enterprise? And have, you know, Worf and O'Brien just make a quip to each other or something like that. Just a little moment like that of acknowledgement could have been really fun. But, I mean, again, the way the plot is set up, those two characters are separated, so you're not going to have that. And they cram a lot time-wise. But in my perfect world where this is a two-hour episode or theatrical feature, preferably... I would have been overjoyed with a moment like that. Well, so I started
1: my Deep Space Nine Season 4 rewatch, you know, a few days ago. And so you, you kick it off with Way of Warrior. And, you know, Worf arrives on the station. He's greeted by O'Brien. And they're sitting down at Quark's. And, you know, they're recounting, you know, you know how they just got through the best of both worlds mission by the skin of their teeth and all that. As far as I recall, that's really... The only time that they ever talked about their time aboard the Enterprise, you know, they and those two, it seemed as if there could have been like a deeper friendship relationship going on. But how many like Worf and
0: O'Brien moments do you really remember from Deep Space Nine? Like barely any. I remember episodes where they're together in an ensemble group, like Apocalypse Rising or something like that. But yeah, there's not a lot.
1: I'm I'm, I'm trying to think about like how many other one-on-one moments there were throughout the run of the series and i think just a lot of it has to do with you know like uh, this was a show in which they found little units within the cast and you know you'd have Worf with jedzia all the time you would have o'brien with uh, bashir all the time you'd have odo with kira all the time or or cork with odo all the time and once you kind of found that the pairings that had a lot of like uh chemistry a little bit of dynamics and back and forth i think they're happy sticking with that you know
0: yeah it's the sort of thing that like when you and i were covering lower decks we got to a point where we acknowledged they just kept pairing up mariner and boimler and tendy and rutherford and we were saying it would be fun to mix them up and they did in season two and i thought the results were really effective it's something that like i I wonder if they were making ds9 now they would say like huh what would happen if we did like a you know kira and wharf episode for example?" yeah
1: I, I that would have been like that, that seems kind of like another lost episode that we didn't really get you know where, where those two uh <laughs> that that would have been like a fun dynamic to watch unfold
0: yeah like there's a lot of you know similar qualities you could match up with just about anyone on ds9 there's I don't think there's any case of two characters who you would put together and it simply would not work. The only time you can kind of run into trouble with that is if it's like say you have Spock. And and this isn't DS9, but just say you have Spock and a character who's also, a say, Tuvok or something. Like, that might be a little tougher just in terms of energy to carry a story through. Right. But DS9, that's not the problem.
1: I think the only thing that maybe, uh, I don't know, Jake and, let's say, Gen Zia, I don't know if that would have been the, the best episode ever. You know, I just don't know what they would have done. Although, Jake had a lot of fun moments with Odo for example. But I don't... Okay, I don't know if a Jake O'Brien episode would have been the most thrilling to watch.
0: (laughs) I'm trying to picture what this episode is of the Jake O'Brien. I mean, they did do a Jake Bashir and that was really fantastic. So maybe they could. I actually think the Jadzia one could be really fun. It's kind of like the cool ant hanging out with Jake. Like, I'm sure they could get a fun story out of that. If it's a lighter-toned episode, I think it could have been pretty good. Um, But yeah, the Jake (laughs) O'Brien... What is that episode?
1: (laughs) I got it. You know, uh, I think it's the episode uh, that preceded uh, this one, um, uh, Trials and Tribulations. I think it was the assignment in which uh, we find out that Keiko is possessed by Mm. the Pa Wraith. Uh, I think it'd be great if uh, Keiko and Jake switch roles in this situation, and it was Jake (laughs) uh, who is uh, uh, possessed and uh, is up to O'Brien to complete all these assignments.
0: Um, I'm okay with watching that alternate universe episode. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, one quality I want to talk about with this episode, and something I don't think we've ever touched on too much when we've discussed this episode over the years, is that so often when you look at, you know, an older film or an older TV show, you go, boy, people don't look like that anymore. And it was really interesting to me this time to rewatch it and really examine, like, the makeup and hairstyles they're putting on the actors and how seamlessly... Some of these even small supporting characters like Bashir's, you know, great grandmother, for example, how much do they look like they stepped right out of the 1960s series. But I also think that the 1960s has a much better
1: sort of fashion style mm-hmm. that something like ages quite a bit better than when you get into the 70s and people have like the the feathered hair and the faded perms and they're walking around with, like, leather vests all the time. Um, obviously, I'm describing you day-to-day in, day you know, the year <laughs> 2021, you know, where, whereas, like, you watch something like Mad Men, and you're like, I wish I could dress like that. That looks wonderful. Whereas, yeah. you know, you, you, you watch an episode of L.A. Law, and you're like, why is that tie gigantic, you know, like, like that sort of stuff? And I think it, it is kind of that seamless fit, and, like, everybody looks great coming into, like, kind of the 1960s style. You know, Bashir's haircut is a little uh, doofier, But everyone else kind of like, there's this timelessness of the 1960s style that really fits in with anybody trying to, um,
0: uh, I don't know, I I guess go undercover within that universe. How much would you kill to see an episode of, I don't care if it's strange you know what, let's do, let's just say Strange New Worlds, where they have to go back in time to season one TNG and blend in. Okay, okay.
1: So you got number one, she she has to be uh the crusher clone, right? With the uh very uh odd 80s hair. Shoulder pads. With, uh, Gates McFadden. Shoulder pads, yeah. Uh then of course we have uh Spock has to wear the Deanna Troy jumpsuit. Clearly. Um so yeah. Um and then uh oh and then uh of course Pike is walking around in the um Ninja uniforms that uh, Worf would always have to uh, perform in. So, um,
0: yeah, I, I think we've got it figured out pretty much. And the hairstyles. You've got to get those fluffier, like late 80s, early 90s hairstyles. Yeah, just look at Patrick Stewart. <laughs> you know what? Patrick Stewart was blessed, honestly. Like, he may not have felt that way when he was young, but the fact is, you look at Patrick Stewart on TNG, he's timeless. Like, there's nothing about that character that's ever aged in an awkward way. Whereas, like, some of the other characters, the hairstyles now look a little funny.
1: Yeah, if we have to grade them, I would say that uh, probably who came up best, obviously, was Picard. I'd say, followed by Data, then Riker. Um, let's just say, like, Worf, like, <laughs> I, I don't know, is that 90s hair? But, um, but I, I think uh, the, the worst, though, comes out because they're going with very much, like, hairstyles at the time. It's got to be uh, Geordi LaForge, mm-hmm. then it's got to be uh, Crusher, and then, I, I, unfortunately, I think it's Troy who has, like, the most dated hairstyles out of everybody.
0: Well, like, Troy has the same hairstyle as Elaine on early seasons of Seinfeld. Yeah, that's a very specific time and place. And, I mean, Pretty much every generic '80s slash '90s dude who popped over to that show for a guest spot—they all look so dated. Yes, uh,
1: what we we are fascinated with, you know, generic '90s man in, in as they appear in, throughout Star Trek's run in the late '80s to early 2000s, where the the casting director was obsessed with just getting the same generic type. Every single time where you needed like a um, a supporting man to come onto the ship for an episode or something like that. They all look exactly the same. Like, I don't know why we couldn't get people that just had a bit of a different flourish. They'd pop out in our minds a little bit more, you know, like um, even that episode with uh, Loxana Troy where we had like David Ogden Steers from M.A.S.H. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish they were like casting actors like that more frequently
0: just to give the episodes a little bit print more panache you know make them stand out just a little bit more because even an episode that i think is fantastic and i think the actor is great but you look at the episode counterpoint on voyager and i mean that guy i think you know has huge charisma in the episode and there's a reason kashik is a character people really remember but just in terms of like a visual look he has that same look as well and it just comes down to raw charisma there yeah uh that's what people say about me
1: yeah true. so um Speaking of raw charisma, we got to talk about the turbo lift scene in which uh, (laughs) Bashir (laughs) debates with O'Brien whether he needs to go perform this physical on a woman who might be his great grandmother (laughs) and then uh, proceed to make love to her and to ensure that um, (laughs) he is born (laughs) at some point in the future. Um, Kim, how long would you debate? The necessity of you um sleeping with your own great grandmother if you had to go back in time
0: not long. um I think I'd be more than happy just to roll the dice that hey, if I'm alive now, I'm probably this probably all works out just fine. <laughs> I mean, but, um O'Brien seemed more than happy to also uh, roll those dice yeah I, it, I I guess for you, you say not long
1: uh, for me though personally, I'd say not at all. but uh, that's just the <laughs> difference between the two of us so.
0: I do think this is a great moment, though, and something that, again, this could have totally just been the tourism episode of DS9, where we get our classic characters, you know, back on the screen, and we have DS9 people just walk around in gawk. Oh, look at the Enterprise. Oh, wow, look at the characters. The fact that they're interacting with that world and playing off of it is so much fun, and having a, like, very <laughs> classic... um, um, Bashir neuroses driven uh, breakdown over this moment is just such great character writing all tied to a very fun setting. Uh,
1: do you think there's also something just about like the 60s setting about Deep Space Nine want to talk a lot more about sex during this mm-hmm. episode because we even have you know Dax recounting uh, previous host Emony who was like uh, talking about McCoy <laughs> saying like I always thought he had
0: the hands of a surgeon and you're like whoa okay <laughs> <laughs> like I am so in favor of continuing to sell um um Bones McCoy as like the total sex symbol. Like that always kind of makes me laugh <laughs> cuz he's the most unlikely one of the trio. <laughs> do we get a Bones <laughs> do we get a
1: <laughs> Bones McCoy uh reappearance uh at some time during the run of
0: Strange New Worlds? Oh. Um I think it's actually more fun to do things like that than to, you know, start bringing in like Kirk and Spock, well we already have Spock obviously, but to be bringing in Kirk and um, obviously Ahura is a member of the cast, but I, yeah. I do think like it would be fun. Kirk, because...
1: Scotty you know, kind of those big, big players. You're kind of like, eh, okay, but like,
0: yeah. Oh, sorry, but continue that. No, thought. no, I think that's actually a good point. You raised Scotty there too. It's like you're going to bring in an actor probably who's going to be doing an impression of what Jimmy Duhans doing as Scotty. I don't know that that's as appealing to me. It is actually more fun to see a character like Bones who has that sort of fly in the ointment kind of vibe, because I think he would be more fun to watch Bounce off the characters on Strange New Worlds than Scotty, who's going to be more of a you know problem solver on a technical you know issue.
1: does uh, does McCoy work on the Strange New Worlds uh, series without Kirk in terms of the interactions with Spock? I don't know if the Spock and McCoy stuff necessarily works without having that Kirk dynamic
0: in the middle of them all. You know, the id, the ego, the superego. Well, someone obviously never read the Bones McCoy Frontier Doctor comic book series. Read it, Cam. I didn't. (laughs) I haven't read it either, but I've seen the title. Um, Yeah, you're right, because he is such a reactive character. So much of what he's doing is... um, you know, reacting to Kirk's commands or bouncing off of Spock. Um, I, I think there's one thing about Bones I always thought was a missed opportunity was in The Way to Eden, the famous hippie episode, um, they were originally going to make the um, the Chekhov's girlfriend character Bones' daughter. And we, we know so little about Bones' backstory and sort of what drives him just on an interpersonal level that I think having things like that to touch on with a character would actually free him up from being paired with, you know, Kirk or Spock. But you're right, we don't really have that yet. So I think they'd have to mine some new territory.
1: So Kim, as we wrap up here, we we can get into our final thoughts. But in in terms of a Deep Space Nine episode, you know, is this a top five, a top 10, a top 20 for you? I
0: think it's a top five. Yeah.
1: It's hard for me to make an argument um, against kicking it out of the top five. You know, I, I understand if People have five other episodes that you know they like more, but I think almost universally, most if, if you did a, a vote among Star Trek fans, I think this would easily make it into the top
0: five. And I think if you're going to ask, what's the most fun episode of DS9 ever? Because when you say best, you start thinking In the Pale Moonlight or Call to Arms, episodes like that. But um, when you say what's the most fun one, um, they made some really fun episodes. You know, Our Man Bashir, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. I think this is the best one, though. This is the one that just balances all of the elements so successfully, plus has a novelty factor of revisiting the TOS world that never gets old. No matter how many times I rewatch this episode, it's always fun. And I always appreciate that they don't replicate the story of Trouble with Tribbles. They're telling their own story as well.
1: Let's take Deep Space Nine out of the equation. Is this the funnest episode of Star Trek, period?
0: Um, It's more fun than anything I can think of on... Voyager, oh, ew, spirit folk, mm, spirit folk, oh, spirit folk. Okay, yeah, yeah you
1: know what? Yeah. You actually got me there.
0: Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, it's definitely anything um, that I can think of on Voyager. Um, I would say the most fun episode of Enterprise is the Mirror Universe two-parter, which gets kind of dark and stuff. So you can debate whether it's the most fun. Um, yeah. And then TNG. TNG is <sighs> usually
1: kind of stiff, right? Yeah, it's, is it like Minosha? Uh, Minosha troy is that like the funnest <laughs> tng episode like i don't know well i feel like if you ask people Hol- what... hollow
0: pursuits <laughs> 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 i think that's the most relatable um i think yeah. <laughs> when you um ask people what the most fun tng episodes are the ones that are going to come up are probably like captain's holiday or cupid um deja q is really fun actually that might be my pick maybe okay
1: okay sure um so i I I think you can make a very good argument that this might be the funnest episode of Star Trek of all time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you start factoring in some of those TOS ones, which could be super fun as well. But uh yeah. Well yeah. You know, the trouble with Tribbles, for instance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, Cam. I, I think this is a, a real fun episode. Any final thoughts before we wrap up here?
0: Yeah, just want to touch on a couple little moments that also just made me smile. Cisco tapping on the uh insignia for the combat. Again, a fun little throwaway gag that I thought it was just brilliant. Um, another little moment that just made me smile. I don't know if I'd ever noticed it before, but when the Tribbles have overrun K7 and we cut back to the bar, in the like far background, there's this very <laughs> beaten down looking bartender just like slumped over the counter, buried in Tribbles. And this actor looks like he belongs on TOS. Like it just is fantastic.
1: Uh, yeah. I, I th- th- that moment jumped out to me as well. It's just kind of I don't know. You you, you can tell that they everybody went all out here. I, just even in terms of casting, the only one that didn't work for me is when they had the the bodybuilder take uh O'Brien into custody. I was like, <laughs> that's not necessarily what a somebody back in the nineteen sixties would have looked like.
0: Yeah. I also give the uh the uh, you know the filmmakers a lot of credit for the shot of the turtle being beamed into space and exploding. Like, you know that that was like the craziest shot they ever did for this show. I wish it was gorier, though. I wish we saw, mm. like, you know, Turtle... Not Turtle, but uh, <laughs> triple Guts or something. <laughs> that would have been funny as well. Maybe that will have to also be a, uh, you know, Lower Decks episode. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. They're very much appreciated and help us with rankings and all sorts of other things. Tyler, what are we doing next time?
1: Okay, so we just delivered two subspace episodes in one week. So we are going to take a little bit of a break and we will come back with a 25-year anniversary episode this time looking at Star Trek First Contact. It's been a while since we tackled this one, probably like five or six years maybe. Um, This might be my favorite Star Trek film. Um, Cam, uh, it'll be fun to kind of consider what the film's legacy is moving forward. And um, where do we go from here with the Borg, which I think we've debated many times. I think this is maybe where the Borg hit their peak. And although there's examples in Voyager that worked, sometimes others that didn't, but um, it's going to be fun to revisit First Contact.
0: Yeah, and it's been quite a long time since I've watched this movie, so I'm looking forward to it. And the last time, I can't say we were paying the most attention, which was a screening outdoors in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, yeah. that. It, it, if anything, yeah. it was like at a... a a pool
1: party screening of uh, Star Trek first contact. So even less attention paid, but I remember it being like rather steamy um, in the very literal sense, not the figurative sense uh, that night as we uh, watched, uh, you know, with the, uh, the Vegas heat hitting the pool in the evening. But uh, Cam, uh, just for listeners out there as well. Um, we're a free show. All we ask is you jump onto your podcatcher, give us five stars. That just helps with the algorithm. More people will find us. All we want to do is reach more ears. If you like the show, it, this is the only thing that we ask of you. We're not asking for money or we're not you know, putting ads into this. So uh, give us a
0: five-star rating. That'd be awesome. For sure. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V as in visuals, 60s style, baby. Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's Reporton. That's R E P O R T O N. N is in nostalgia. Done right. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.